Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello again and welcome to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. I'm your host, certified sex therapist Lori Watson, author of Wanting Sex Again, and blogger at Psychology Today and WebMD. And I have with me Dr. Adam Matthews, my co-host, who's a couples therapist, psychotherapist, and president of NCAMFT. Foreplay is dedicated to helping couples keep it hot. Thanks for listening. Now on to today's topic. Today's episode is in observance of National Infertility Awareness Week. Hey, gang. This is your sex therapist, Lori Watson. And my buddy, Dr. Adam Matthews, is on vacation. So you've got me today. We are going to talk about some special problems that happen sexually or that impact sex. Particularly, we're going to talk about infertility and miscarriages and other traumas that seem to set us back. And I know that for some of you, uh, you have not suffered these things, but it might be good to listen on and hear what you might do in case that does happen to you and your partner. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is infertility and why this makes lovemaking go offline. I mean, the first thing that happens with infertility, of course, is this frustration. Many people are trying to get pregnant. They have all their high hopes of making a family. And month after month, they don't get pregnant. And so suddenly there's this anxiety that comes into play, like, is this the month? Is this the cycle? Um, Will it happen? And maybe they have consulted their OBGYN who says, "Ah, give it six months. You know, we'll see. Because most people do get pregnant within six months. Or maybe by this time they've consulted a specialist or their OBGYN is working with them to figure out what is wrong. You know, and to begin with, there's lots of testing that goes on that includes our genitals. I mean, men have to give a sperm sample and that can be a little embarrassing. They can go into a little room, masturbate. Uh, Sometimes they're offered porn um, so that they can do that. And then they have to bring the sample over you know, to the desk. And it's just this really invasive feeling of like, somebody knows I just jerked off, right? (laughs) I mean, it's just, I I think for many men, it can be really embarrassing. And sometimes men delay their side of the testing because of that feeling of embarrassment. And their wives can feel unsupported because they're going through a ton of very invasive testing as well. And I think it's important that the male go ahead and do this test, even though through the embarrassment, because if the sperm count is low or there's something that's going on, better to get that uh, figured out before she has to go through more painful tests. And a lot of the infertility testing is painful. For instance, oh, you might have to have vaginal ultrasounds, not necessarily painful, but again, very invasive. Um, I would suggest to you if you're doing this and you're going through infertility treatment or you know somebody who is, please have them listen to this podcast. And then girlfriend, ask the technician if you can insert 
the wand vaginally, that gives you some sense of control over what's happening and they can see everything that they need to see. And I think it doesn't feel quite as medicalized or as invasive if you do it yourself. So that might be one way to handle it. But there's other painful things like histiopingograms, which basically they shoot dye through your uterus and then the, the dye floods your fallopian tubes to make sure that they're clear. And that's a really quite painful issue you know, sometimes they need to take biopsies of your uterus if there's a cyst or some sort of thickening. All of these things can be problematic and painful. So it's almost like your body is invaded, and this is our sexual mechanisms. So I think right from the get-go, infertility is like, ooh, somebody is up close. They're an up close, and it doesn't it right away doesn't feel good and it just feels like they're invading your sex life. Then you're asked to record oftentimes your temperature. So every morning the woman is takes her temperature and all of these things start to be governed by the calendar and you know where your temperature is. And suddenly we're told, okay, you've got to make love at a certain time uh, of the month and Maybe now you're on medication that impacts your moods and you may not feel as sexual or have as high of libido if you're the female. And I think if you're the guy, it's all this additional pressure, right? Okay, I have to perform. I have to get it up. I have to ejaculate. And a lot of men find that, ironically, during infertility treatment that they can't ejaculate. And so it's almost like the treatment itself brings sexual dysfunction. And I think it's so hard to realize that, you know, for for all of us, making love is something that we want to do. But when we're told to do it, there's this oppositional part of our nature that says, "Eh, I don't want to be told to do anything. This is, I think, in fact, part of the problem between the pursuer and the distancer sexually that the distancing partner feels pressure to have sex. It becomes a have to rather than a want to. And, you know, as we've talked about many times, that dynamic kills their libido. Well, this happens to the couple when they're dealing with infertility. Both of them feel a have to, even though they may want children and want to have sex on an ordinary day, like during infertility treatment, there's just this repression of libido. It's our nature, right? Don't tell me what to do. I want to be independent. And I think there's nothing super fun about it. I will tell you a a little story about myself. Um, So my husband and I had a first child uh, just a few months too soon. We we were married, um, but we had had a purchase of a house and, you know, we thought it was too soon. We were ridiculous, right? Uh, We we didn't um, realize there's probably never a perfect time for a child. But anyway, we were anxious about getting things paid back to our parents who had lent us down payments. And it turns out that it was just fine. We hit the bubble in California and boom, we paid everybody back. But then we weren't able to get pregnant again. And we didn't know why. And eventually it turns out that I had polycystic ovarian syndrome, which as we're going to talk about a little bit more because it's a it's one of the problems that happens for infertility. 
So we tried and tried, didn't get pregnant, and eventually I was put on medication and drugs, um, and not that much fun. So cycle after cycle, I remember my grief that I didn't have another child. I felt a lot of pressure. Oh, my first child is going to be so much older than my next child. They won't be friends. You know, I, I had all this anxiety about that. And as you might have already gathered, I'm a little bit anxious anyway. So eventually my husband was on a trip and I was ovulating and it turns out, you know, you can't waste that. So I had to fly up to him. He had a 20 minute meeting and he said, you know, I can break for this 20 minutes and uh, we can do it. And I had to make plans for my then three or four year old to be babysat and he knew some people that could do that. Of course, that made me anxious. And I basically had to lie flat afterwards. That was the word at the time. And I didn't get pregnant. But I, just all that stress, I had to take a plane flight to have sex. I mean, it, it was very stressful. And I had this little baby with me and this toddler. And I just remember that as a stressful time. Then I got pregnant and I miscarried that baby. And I was really, really sad thinking that that baby was a girl child. And, you know, how would you ever know? Actually, it turns out that boys are the most likely to be miscarried because I think their chromosome is more fragile in terms of what can go wrong with the Y chromosome. But I had in my head that I was miscarrying a girl and I was very sad. And of course, my husband didn't really know at that point in our marriage how to comfort me. I think that he felt overwhelmed. He was a young husband and I was a young wife. We didn't really know as much at that point about how to turn toward each other and offer and ask for what we needed. So I remember the day I had a DNC, which is basically a procedure that scrapes out your uterus for all that the tissue that is left. The, the baby had died and was not spontaneously coming out. So I had to have a procedure to do that. And it turns out it was a very complicated procedure for me. And my husband left me that evening to go to a meeting and I was cramping, um, sad, anxious. And I don't know why, but at the time I couldn't find it in me to say, you know, I really want you to stay with me. I feel like I need company and I need your comfort. And somehow or another, I guess I thought he should know or which all of us do, right? And when we're young and we're dumb and um, we haven't learned this, had this ability to ask for what we need and make it very plain and clear to our partners. So so that was a drag. And then eventually I did get pregnant again with my next son. Uh, and that was spontaneous. And I was delighted. But I, I would say that if you've gone through infertility treatment, I feel with you. I know that it's a sex killer. I know that this is a really difficult thing. And, and this is the tips that I would give you. First of all, I would say, go ahead and figure out when you're ovulating and do the have to sex. And then if you possibly can during this season, when you're trying to get pregnant, go away for a weekend and make love on days that it has nothing to do with getting pregnant. Go ahead and just say, you know what, this is our, our window of time that we're just us again. And we're not going to think about infertility treatments. We're not going to think about how many times we should or shouldn't do it. 
We're just going to be alone together, be a couple, especially if it's before your first child. I would suggest, you know, that makes it easy to get away. And go ahead and have the the lovemaking that is spontaneous, that is, you know, because you want to, not because you have to. And maybe you might need to end up just holding each other in bed and, you know, spending time naked and connecting again because of the stress and not to mention the expense of infertility treatment, which now, as we know, is a major stressor on a marriage. And often insurance doesn't cover it as well as it did when I was trying to get pregnant. So I know that there are many factors that impact you as you're trying to get through this. I would just say you have my sympathy. Also, you know, get the facts from your physician. Sometimes, for instance, after egg retrieval, you are not allowed to orgasm or have intercourse. So make sure you don't plan that trip um, at an inadvertent time that would keep you from fully experiencing sexual pleasure. I think, too, you know, think about who you tell about your infertility treatment and try to keep that small. I think there's nothing like people watching and asking, you know, did you get pregnant? Is it this month? You know, when will you know? Even friends and family, I would say, tell the people that would support you and would not be invasive and would not ask and will let you tell them. Because I think there's also this sense of everybody's watching us have sex, you know, and waiting for the big news. And I think that that can be a a downer. You know, a lot of couples therapists actually specialize in infertility treatment and the problems that happen with that, the stressors. So if you have any extra money, which I know is tough, please go ahead and do that. I know at Awakenings here, Caroline Bird Landon is our therapist who really specializes in sexual pain problems and infertility. So she would be more than willing to consult with you, even one session by Skype or by phone and you know, you could do that as well. Okay, let's move on and talk about miscarriage. Uh, first of all, as you heard, I miscarried. And I think the difficulty is technically you can have sex for two weeks after a miscarriage. But practically, I, I think most couples are dealing with a tragedy. And ironically, right, for the woman who may feel like her body failed Uh, She may be filled with a sense of shame and disappointment about her body and therefore alienated from her body. Uh, She may not want to resume sexual relationships in two weeks. And if you're a typical guy and you're a sexual pursuer and that's the way you get connected, this can be really frustrating because maybe in your grief over losing a child or losing the potential for a child, you really want to feel close to your partner. And so, of course, you want sex. And then all of a sudden, as per often happens, you know, for many reasons, then she doesn't. Um, I think sometimes people blame sex for the miscarriage because the doctor might ask them something like, well, did you have sex last night? And the couple is like, "Uh, were we not supposed to? Is that what caused the miscarriage? I want to reassure you that 80% of miscarriages are really chromosomal abnormalities. So while I had this fantasy that my miscarriage was a girl child, you know, probably not really. It's mostly male children. 
But it's possible, and sometimes it is a physiological issue. So certainly, if you have miscarried, you know, you want to talk to your physician about that and make sure that there's nothing structural that's happening. You know, for instance, sometimes the cervix is what they say incompetent, and it doesn't close enough. It's it's too weak. But that can be repaired, uh, and you can usually carry a baby to term. Uh, there's other problems that happen in the uterus, all sorts of issues that can cause miscarriage. So certainly after one or two miscarriages, you want to check that out. But if you're young and healthy, you shouldn't worry about it that much. Um, Talk to your doctor. That's my biggest advice. And then I would say design some sort of ritual. Uh, If you wanted this child, design a ritual that lets you say goodbye uh, to that potential and to that vision. I think for us, we planted an azalea that was pink. Uh, That just would remind me every year that this was um, the date that I had assumed she would be born. And I I think it's actually, interestingly, right around this time, it was April 15th was my due date. And um, I have long since moved from that house. (laughs) But, um, you know, do something that says this this was our love, our our lovemaking that created this, and we're saying goodbye. Um, Sometimes it's helpful to name the child. I know that sometimes people miscarry later on, and this is when uh, the child is potentially viable and something goes wrong with the body or something goes wrong and they lose the child. And of course, this is just terrible, terrible grief uh, because it's a baby that might have lived outside the womb and doesn't. And I, I just think you know, the loss of a child is probably almost the worst thing we can, any of us can imagine. And so now sex may be way on the back burner, maybe for both of you. And I would say, let's, let's think about this as grief. And you're going to need to go through all the processes of grief, right? The denial, like, how could this happen to us? The bargaining, you know, God, please let us keep this child or Maybe the prayers, you know, something, if we find out the child has chromosomal issues, you know, somehow the doctors are wrong and, you know, can't we possibly have a healthy child? There's all that that goes on and there's anger that you're going to have to go through. Why did this happen to us? You know, why would this happen to us when some people don't want children and we desperately did and and now you know, we are at a loss. It's just not fair, all of that. Um, Many times people do fall into depression, especially really almost at any stage of miscarriage. It can be early or late. Um, I certainly had a mild form of depression. You know, mine was the, the whole vision, I think, of a girl child. I have three sons, and I'm grateful every single day for my boys, and I love them. But I think at the time it was this idea of having a mini me, probably my own narcissistic projection, but I wanted that. And I I remember that the whole thought of going through more infertility treatment and that stressor looming ahead did not make me look forward to sex. Uh, And I am the sexual pursuer, so that's not generally an issue. It was just the thought of the have-do, the timing, the stressors that it seemed to put on our spontaneity. So please get a little bit of help um, with this. And I'd like to come back and talk further about other issues that might impact your sex life that are traumatic 
and difficult for couples to handle in terms of the stressors and how it particularly affects sex. Okay, Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy, this is Lori Watson. So just a quick word about our couples intensives that both me and Lori offer. Oftentimes, healing in relationships, it just takes more than the average 50-minute session every week over several months of time. Uh, Couples Intensive Therapy offers an alternative to that. What happens over a weekend, typically 12 to 16 hours, somewhere in there, that really helps to calm high-conflict situations, build more healthy patterns of communication, and really, it's a jump start to change, right, Lori? Like, it can be something that can really catapult you into change a little bit quicker than the average once a week type of therapy situation. I think so. And people ask me, what does it look like? What do you do? And usually for me, I do a three-day itinerary. The first day is basically coming to why did they come at this point in their relationship? What is their current functioning? And then often maybe that's a Friday night, Saturday morning, we start talking about what is the dynamic? Where's the toxic cycle? And then we look at their family of origin. And I would say by Saturday afternoon, that's the time that we start to really dig into how do you stop the toxic cycle? And maybe if the problem is over sexual difficulties, there's an assignment and a discussion about what that will be. And they usually complete that assignment in their hotel room all by themselves. You know, we don't do any of that, you know, supervision of that. But we then the next morning debrief that and talk about you know how the assignment went. There is often time at this point because of the amount of hours that we've spent together to perhaps process one trauma from the past as well. So it, you know it's a really intensive way of working. It's my favorite way to work and you know I'm reducing kind of my weekly caseload at this point so this is where I'm directing my efforts in clinical work. Right. You also get a post-intensive action plan to take home with you to follow up. We plan how you can continue this work for you. But we'd be happy to talk to you more about if you feel like an intensive is right for you, whether it'd be good to work with me or with Lori. So give us an email at info at foreplayradiosextherapy.com. So we're back together talking about some difficult subjects. And one I'd like to talk about is the grief of a sexless marriage. And that is, I'm talking about a truly, truly sexless marriage, not just 10 times a year, but zero times a year, and where the partners have stopped having sex, but one partner at least desires it, wishes for an intimate life with their partner, and they have not been able to make that happen. And I know you're out there. I know you listen because you write me a lot, and I think that... You know, if you have gone through therapy and your partner refuses to be sexual in any form and you have chosen to stay in the marriage and you have chosen to stay monogamous, which is a very, very tough place to be, I think that you have to go through grief and the grieving process to let go of this pain. Obviously, I want you still to be, you know, masturbating and enjoying your own body Uh, because that keeps you alive and at least in that place having fantasies of a sexual life. But I think in your partnership, I understand that this happens. I hate that this happens, and I have a great deal of hope to help people like this, but sometimes people actually get to the end of the road. 
and they are truly sexless. And they say, what can I possibly do? And I think what you need to do is spend time letting go. And that may be with the help of a therapist, especially if your decision is to stay. I mean, sometimes it's true, and I have worked with a couple in, I have in mind where because of the past hurts, um, she decided to no longer be sexual. She was menopausal. She didn't feel it in her body. He was deeply sexual, wanted to be sexual with her, and loved her. And I wouldn't say he was an uber-sexual pursuer, but he definitely wanted that in their life together. And she refused. And he decided to stay in the marriage. And as we talked about it, I mean, there was just no alternative for her uh, to be sexual. And some of it really had to do with his own lack of sensitivity earlier in their life. And she said she had forgiven him, but couldn't find it in herself to continue. And I think all of us, this is a dreadful fear that somehow or another our partner will turn off. And especially if we are deeply committed to fidelity and monogamy and the pledges that we've made in marriage, this is a terror. And I think for him, he believed that the partnership was deep and rich in many ways, although it was going to be unfulfilling in this way. And so he agreed to stay in the marriage and told her, you know, that he would stay. But together, he and I had to process this as, you know, a death. If you're not going to be sexual with your intimate partner and, and you've decided not to be sexual with anybody else, it truly is the loss of what you thought partnership would be. Um, I think certainly as we age, while some young people listening may not believe that older people still want and desire sex as much as they do, they do. And this feeling of romantic love and this expression to not have it in the relationship is so painful. Um, I do think that there are times and decisions that people make and good reasons to go forward together in partnership. So what I would say to you is get with a therapist, get with a best friend, and cry and rage and scream and not at your partner and um, rail against the disappointment that is there. And, and you know, this is not my first choice for you, but I would say at least allow yourself the privilege of masturbation and staying alive erotically, use vibrators, have some fun with your own body so that you can enjoy still the release and pleasure and maybe see if there's a compromise with your partner in terms of at least touch. I think that that's just so essential that hugging, holding, um, maybe they will still do that and I would work for that. Okay, so sexlessness, a huge grief. And then what happens when you actually lose your partner? You know, when the place next to you in bed is now empty and I think we worry about that. I know that I did, especially when I was young. I called it happiness anxiety. I loved my husband so much that I would torture myself with fantasies of what would happen if he were dead. You know, what would happen if he were killed in an accident or died suddenly? And I had a girlfriend who actually lost her husband young. And she helped me with this. She said, you know, Lori, nothing prepared me 
for the loss of my husband. Nothing. She said, I worried all the time, and I was always frantic when he was late. And she said, it's almost like you're trying to prepare yourself for what might come, and it can become anxious and obsessive. But she said, nothing prepares you for that kind of loss and that kind of grief. And I think, of course, something that people don't realize when you're grieving your partner, that you've lost your sexual partner, and that this thriving, alive part of your body is now potentially unfulfilled with your monogamous partner, and how sad that is for you in on many, many, many levels to lose that. So I would say grief of a partner is, of course, complicated by the sexual grief of losing somebody who knew your body, who knew all the tricks and knew how to turn you on and shared your sexual secrets, uh, maybe was your first partner. And now you're facing a life without that person and losing the tenderness, the specialness, the sacredness of a longtime partner. Um, So again, more of the grief process, incorporate that into your grief process. I had a friend who was dealing with her husband maybe facing prostate cancer, and she told another friend, you know, I I would really be in grief over not having sexual intercourse. And her friend shamed her and said, you know, how can you think of that? How can you be so selfish that, you know, you want sex at a time that your husband is facing potential cancer, life-threatening? And one of my thoughts about this whole encounter in this is, of course, people don't talk enough about the way cancer impacts sexual functioning, both prostate cancer, breast cancer is horrible, ovarian genital cancer, problematic for women. They don't think about the sexual losses. In fact, the doctors don't talk about it. But when I was thinking about these two friends, the one who said, I would so miss having sexual intercourse, her other friend was not very sexual in her marriage. And this friend who could openly say, I would miss sexual intercourse, she was sexual. And it was like, Sometimes when we have something and have it in a rich and alive way, our, our grief is even greater. Uh, people who lose partners when they've been deeply connected, you know, sometimes they never get over it. But on the flip side of that, they had a love that they allowed themselves to be so connected in, so deeply connected physically and emotionally that they have something to grieve, whereas other people who maybe are more avoidant and have kept themselves from being utterly vulnerable. They don't feel as deeply. They get over it seemingly, but I don't think they live the same kind of rich life that those of us who are striving to really be vulnerable in our love life, in our sex life, and in our emotional connection with somebody might feel. And every love life, every love story ends badly. As I've said before, the more we love, The worse it is when we grieve and lose somebody and we lose our sexual partner, of course, there's tremendous grief. Okay, so this has been a a tough one to talk about today. I hope that it's helpful for you, for what you face. I hope to encourage you all to give yourselves fully, even though it's going to be painful. And uh, in the end, I hope that you live the richest life that you can with vulnerability and with wasteful love. 
You're listening to For Play Radio Sex Therapy. Lori Watson, your sex therapist. You can now call in your questions to the Foreplay Question voicemail. Dial 833-MY-4PLAY. That's 833-4PLAY. And we'll use the questions for our mailbag episodes. Hey, help us stay on top here at Foreplay. We'd love it if you would subscribe and share it with your friends. And please take one sec and rate and review us. Thanks so much. All content is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for therapy by a licensed clinician or as medical advice from a doctor.